In the following story, dates and names often differ among primary sources. When the correct name was in question, we went with the most widely accepted English version. When dates are in doubt, we use the timeline offered in the book Mansa Musa and Timbuktu by Charles River Editors. In the summer of 1324, an extravagant and lavish procession paraded through the western gate of Cairo, the thriving capital of Egypt. At the head of this procession was a line of 500 men, dressed in richly woven fabrics of purple, green, and crimson. Each man held a six-pound staff made of pure gold. Following these heralds came a splendid rider on a stately black Arabian thoroughbred. The rider wore a red tunic stitched with golden threads and impossibly wide silk pants, a sign of his majesty and power. On his head sat a gold skullcap. The man's gold and silver jewelry glittered in the afternoon sun. The rider saw thousands of onlookers packing the streets to get a glimpse of him. He tossed them gold coins by the handful. Behind him came more riders on fine horses, dancers in rich silks, servants decked in colorful headdresses, and hundreds of camels loaded with enormous sacks of gold. And this was just the vanguard. Camped outside the city were 60,000 more men, women, and children, a moving city that had just crossed the Sahara Desert, the distance of California to Maine. It all belonged to the man on the splendid Arabian horse, Mansa Musa, Emperor of Mali, the richest man on earth. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a ParCast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Historical Figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Well, at ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're discussing Mansa Musa, the enormously wealthy ruler of the West African Empire of Mali in the 14th century. Kankan Musa was born around 1280 CE into the family that founded the Malian Empire. As Mansa, or emperor, he would go on to become not just the wealthiest man of his generation, but the wealthiest person who ever lived. Adjusted for inflation, modern estimates put his fortune around $400 billion. 
Oh, that's a lot of money. Yes, it is. In fact, it's more than today's three richest people combined. The only other historical figure who comes even close is John D. Rockefeller, the 19th century oil magnate who's estimated to have been worth around $380 billion in today's dollars. Musa led Mali during the height of its golden age, expanding the empire's borders, spreading the teachings of Islam, and cleaning up the corruption that had proliferated for decades. Few people in the broader medieval world had heard of Mali before Musa came to power. But by the time he died, his name and his empire were the stuff of legend. But reaching that height of wealth and of the fame that came with it had never been guaranteed for Khan Khan Musa, despite being related to the imperial family. The Kingdom of Mali emerged in the 1100s as one of several Islamic kingdoms in West Africa that rose up from the ashes of the Ghana Empire. By the time Khan Khan Musa was born around 1280, his grandfather Abu Bakari ruled over a vast empire. Mali stretched over a thousand miles from east to west, covering a wide swath of Saharan and sub-Saharan West Africa that included both the Senegal and Niger River valleys. The empire had control of gold mines near the southern border, which were operated by the Wangara people. Mali also had well-established trade routes in gold and salt, adding to their considerable wealth. Khan Khan Musa was probably born in the royal palace in the capital city of Niani. The name he was given is Arabic for Moses. Born into privilege, he was in direct line for the throne. But all that fell apart when young Musa was just five years old. In 1285, his grandfather, Abu Bakari, died. How he died is not known, but his son, Musa's father, Fagalea, didn't take the throne after him. Instead, a usurper named Sakura seized power. The circumstances surrounding Sakura's rise are a mystery. Was Musa's father already dead by then? Did Sakura defeat him in battle? The historical record provides few answers. What is known is that Sakura was a former slave who had been freed and had risen to become a prominent general to Mansa Sundiata and his successors. Under his rule as Mansa, the empire began to expand again as the general-turned-emperor retook the lands that his predecessors had lost. He revived their dwindling trade routes and returned Mali to its former glory. Where Khan Khan Musa was during this time, or what he was doing, is lost to history. Nothing, in fact, is known of his childhood or upbringing, aside from his connections to the imperial family, and that he had at least one younger brother named Suleiman. We also know that around 1298, Mansa Sakura decided to go on the Hajj, the annual Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. West Africa had begun to convert to Islam several hundred years earlier. By the time the Malian Empire came into prominence in the 1200s, Islam was well established among the ruling classes. Mansa Uli, some 40 years earlier, had taken the Hajj as well. But on his way back home to Mali, Mansa Sakura's party was attacked by bandits and the emperor was murdered. Wanting to re-establish the ruling family on the empire's throne, the imperial council looked to a nephew of the empire's founder, Sundiata. This nephew, named Gao, took the throne around the year 1300. 
Khan Khan Musa was about 20 years old in 1300, and it's not known whether the council considered him for the position, having been the grandson of a former Mansa. It's possible he was considered too young to take the throne. At that time, Musa was probably living comfortably in Niani, completing his education. This would have included mastering several languages, including Arabic, and becoming proficient in Islamic history and theology. As a member of the imperial family, Musa must have also learned how to lead and govern. He would likely have had lessons in things like science, history, geometry, and economics, given his known appreciation for scholarly pursuits. While Musa was busy completing his education, his relatives ruled an increasingly wealthy and powerful empire. In 1305, Mansa Gao was followed on the throne by his son, Muhammad. When Muhammad died around 1310, he was followed by a man named Abu Bakari. How this second Abu Bakari was related to the royal family is not clear, but evidence suggests he was either a grandson or grandnephew of the first emperor, Mansa Sandiata. The only biographical information historians have on Abu Bakari II comes from a story told by Khan Khan Musa himself, which was written down a few years after his death. According to Musa, Abu Bakari II was a dreamer and explorer. Intent on continuing to expand his new empire, he dreamed of voyaging into the Atlantic Ocean and colonizing the places he found there. 150 years before Christopher Columbus was born, Abu Bakari II was convinced there was land beyond the Great Western Ocean. In the first year of his reign, Mansa Abu Bakari sent 400 ships out from the western coast of Africa on an exploratory mission to see if they could find the other side of the ocean. Several months later, a single ship returned, telling a story that must have kindled Abu Bakari's spirit of adventure. The captain claimed that the ships came upon what he called a river in the ocean with a powerful current. The other ships went on ahead, but this particular captain stayed back. When none of the other ships returned, he finally turned eastward and headed back home. According to Musa, Abu Bakari immediately began planning a second journey. This time, he wanted to see for himself exactly what the captain was talking about. He built a thousand ships to carry himself and his men, and then built another thousand to carry all their supplies. It was customary among the emperors of Mali to publicly name a deputy to oversee the empire when they were away on military or diplomatic expeditions. Abu Bakari chose 32-year-old Khan Khan Musa to take care of things in his absence. How the two men were related is not known, although Musa was likely a nephew or cousin. As a member of the ruling family, he was probably already working in government in some way. Musa was also probably there on the western shore in 1312 to see the great armada of ships embark on their grand journey. He would later state, I became the master of Mali because my predecessor refused to believe that the ocean was infinite. He assigned to me his authority and power until such a day as he should return. But to this day, no one has ever seen him again.
Coming up, we'll explore Kankan Musa's reign as the emperor of Mali. Now, back to the story. Around the year 1312, Kankan Musa became the emperor of Mali when his predecessor, Abu Bakari II, failed to return from an exploration of the Atlantic Ocean. Musa was about 32 years old at the time. He had spent his early life in the background, biding his time. Now, he stepped onto the world stage. The exact circumstances surrounding the transfer of power are not clear, but by 1312, Musa and his family had moved into the royal palace in the capital city of Niani, and Musa began running the empire. One of the first issues facing him was the problem of lawlessness, particularly along the trade routes. Trade was the backbone of Mali's economy. Isolated in West Africa from the power centers of Europe and the Middle East, Mali relied on very long trade routes which branched off from the empire in almost all directions. Used by travelers as well as trade caravans, over the years these routes had become infested with crime. Nomadic Touareg tribesmen preyed on the traders and travelers. Sometimes they would require a toll to pass. Other times they would attack a party outright, killing travelers and taking their goods. They were even known to attack a town or village in the immediate area. For years, this situation had severely limited trade and travel to and from the isolated empire. This was especially true on the western trade route that ran northward across the Sahara to Morocco. From there, it would pass across North Africa and into the Middle East. This was a vital artery to Mali's economic heart because the most abundant salt mines were situated along this western trade route. Mali was awash in gold, but lacked salt. Trading gold for salt was one of the primary sources of income for the empire. As a result, Musa was determined to establish safe passage for his trade caravans. He wanted to be the richest and most powerful emperor Africa had ever seen. And he knew that gold and other trade goods were the way to make that happen. Mali had a military of about 100,000 men, including nearly 10,000 mounted soldiers in the cavalry. Leading his men into battle, Musa attacked the brigands and desert nomads who plagued the trade routes within the empire. He was able to drive them back into the desert and away from the caravans. But all his work wasn't done at the tip of a sword. Musa was widely known for his negotiating skills, which he put to use with the Toregs. By paying them off, he ensured they would steer clear of the trade routes, allowing Mali's economy to swell. Clearing the countryside and trade routes of crime not only boosted the empire's economy, but won praise and renown for Musa. He had passed his first test as emperor and was increasingly seen as not only a wise and effective administrator, but a successful military leader as well. With his empire cleared of brigands, Mansa Musa turned his attention to matters of religion. A devout Muslim who was likely well-educated in the Quran, he began using the country's growing wealth to build mosques. One legend goes so far as to say that he commissioned a new mosque every Friday of his reign. While Islam had been practiced among Mali's royals and elites for centuries, many of the empire's peasants and commoners still practiced older forms of traditional African religion. 
Musa issued edicts for Malians to convert to Islam. He reinforced this by building numerous religious schools. This, he knew, would help spread the teachings of Muhammad to new generations of Malians whose parents were still steeped in the old ways. But he also knew how to balance his deep piety with his commitment to the secular health of the empire. When news of his edicts trickled down to the Wangara gold miners in the south of the empire, they didn't take it well. Located in the modern area of Burkina Faso and Ghana, the Wangara were staunchly loyal to their way of life and beliefs. They rebelled against Musa's edict to convert, initiating what later generations would call a labor strike. They had no intention of converting to Musa's religion, which these people of the land likely saw as a vehicle of the elite. As the very foundation of Mali's economy, these gold miners knew they had a lot of clout. The strike became a standoff as Musa's government insisted on carrying out his decree and the strikers responded by refusing to work. Musa's more hawkish ministers advised him to lead the army to the southern provinces and force the miners to go back to work. But Musa didn't heed their advice. Instead, he gave in to the miners' demands, exempting them from the requirement to convert to Islam. They promptly went back to work and the flow of gold returned. His decision was viewed and widely retold as an example of his great wisdom. Through it, he sent a message to his people that he was willing to listen to them and do what was in their best interest and that of the nation. On a much more personal level, it showed that despite his piety, Musa was willing to bend the rules if he thought it would negatively impact his wealth and status. Archaeologist Astley John Hillary Goodwin has stated that for Musa, Islam was more than just prayers and scripture readings. It was also a way of bringing his empire into the modern age and gaining respect for himself in the cultural centers of the Middle East. But none of that would have been possible without his gold mines. So when they rebelled against his attempt to convert them, Musa wisely allowed the miners to retain their traditional beliefs. Building wealth and power was one thing, but Musa was also intent on displaying it. He liked to play the part of the aloof and majestic ruler. He was acutely aware of the importance of public perception. If you wanted to be a strong and powerful king, you had to look and act the part. And that's just what Musa did. He conducted the business of the empire from atop a magnificent ebony throne on a pedestal in the courtyard of the palace. The throne was flanked by two upright ivory tusks, which were potent symbols of power. A retinue of armed guards stood in a row behind him. When Musa entered the courtyard, trumpets and drums would announce his entrance. Once he was seated, a large curtain was drawn, revealing him in his splendor on the throne. The assembled crowd was expected to show proper deference to the king. They arrived wearing dirty clothes, as freshly laundered garments were considered disrespectful to the king's own spotless elegance. When the curtain was raised, they went to their knees and bowed their heads to the ground. Then they took handfuls of dust and poured it over themselves as a way of groveling before Musa's resplendent majesty. Only when Musa gave a signal could they finally rise into a sitting position on the ground in front of his raised throne. 
Once the proper respect had been paid, Musa would begin conducting the business of the court. Servants would stand by his side, shading him with large woven umbrellas and fanning him from the heat of the African sun. A herald with a booming voice repeated his words to the gathered audience. The herald was a close advisor of the emperor and wore robes of rich fabric and a specially decorated turban. He carried a sword at his waist and held two ceremonial spears, one of gold and one of silver. Heralds were chosen from among the lower classes. This was so that he could never outshine the emperor's dignity with his own family connections. As a general rule, Musa never spoke publicly to anyone but his heralds. If he needed to say something to someone else, the herald spoke on his behalf. On court days, petitioners would come from all over the empire to have Musa rule on legal matters and settle disputes. From his throne, he took reports from his ministers and issued orders and commands. He also oversaw religious and secular ceremonies. On feast days, he rode out to a specially designated field on horseback, arriving, as always, to the sounds of trumpets and drummers. He was accompanied by a retinue of soldiers, each decked out in gleaming armor and carrying swords and spears. Gold and silver decorated their scabbards, quivers, and arrows, everything gleaming in the African sun. After Musa arrived, the festivities would begin. Entertainment during the feasting included singers, dancers, music, and acrobats. The herald would recite epic poems about the history of Mali and the exploits of the emperor. Musa, for his part, would give away gold to the assembled masses. Musa used these festivals as a way to display his wealth, splendor, and generosity, all of which were expected traits of any powerful king. It also kept his subjects happy, and Musa knew that word would spread of his benevolence and majesty. Hosting feasts and giving away gold was a quick and easy way to earn appreciation, but Musa knew that improving the livelihoods of his people was the best way to earn a lasting reputation. As the trade routes flourished in his early years on the throne, his subjects began to thrive. In addition to gold mines, Mali was rich in farmland and rivers, and as the economy boomed, food was abundant. Musa's subjects were well-fed, well-educated, well-clothed, and had a high standard of living compared to their European counterparts, who often lived in abject misery. Especially as the trade caravans began to bring in more than just salt, imports began to arrive from as far away as Europe, Persia, and even China. These included everything from spices and silks to handmade tools, fine fabrics, and Arabian horses. In exchange for these goods from across the known world, Mali exported not just gold, but also copper. Copper was especially prized in the lands south of Mali, where they made brass from copper and zinc. A valuable copper mine on the eastern edge of Mali had been annexed several decades earlier by Musa's predecessor, Mansa Sakura. But being operated by the rebellious Toregs, taxes and fees hadn't always been paid. That all changed with Musa's campaign to pacify the Toregs early in his reign. Trade in copper increased and tax revenue began flowing in. Musa would later state, there is nothing in all my empire which is such a large source of taxes as this copper mine. 
And those taxes are how Musa really built his legendary wealth, as salt, copper, silks, livestock, and countless other trade goods poured into and out of the empire. All of it was subject to taxation. Every marketplace had a royal tax collector assigned to it, and every town had a financial officer to oversee the king's business there. The gold began to pile up in Musa's treasury. He used it to fund military campaigns to expand the empire's borders, broadening his reputation as a successful military leader. And by putting more lands under Mali's control, Musa brought even more wealth into the nation. Under Mansa Musa, Mali had entered a true golden age. It was at the height of this golden age, around the year 1323, that Musa decided he was ready to be officially introduced to the world. By this time, he'd been at the helm of Mali's empire for 11 years, and he was about 43 years old. He brought his advisors together and asked them to begin planning a grand pilgrimage to Mecca in the Arabian Peninsula. Every Muslim is required to make the Hajj at least once in their lifetimes. As a particularly devout ruler, Musa was especially eager to go. Furthermore, for any medieval Muslim ruler who wanted to be known far and wide, taking the Hajj was a vital necessity. Not only did it fulfill a religious requirement, but it was an opportunity to display wealth, power, and prestige. And Musa had every intention of outdoing any sultan, ruler, or king who had come before him. He was determined to make his pilgrimage one for the history books. Coming up, we'll explore one of the most famous pilgrimages in history and how it made Mansa Musa a household name across the Muslim world. Now, back to the story. In 1323, 43-year-old Mansa Musa was at the height of his power. His empire of Mali was in the midst of a golden age, and Musa had amassed a personal fortune that outstripped all of his predecessors on the throne. It was in that year of 1323 that Musa began planning a pilgrimage to Mecca in fulfillment of his duty as a Muslim. He intended to put the full force of his prodigious wealth behind the journey. From his capital city of Niani, the pilgrimage would cover more than 4,000 miles. He planned on inspecting the resources of as many towns and mines along the way as possible, so he charted a journey along the most valuable trade route in the empire. He would travel nearly a thousand miles northward into the Sahara, then turn northeast and continue on to Cairo. From Cairo, he would cross the Sinai Desert and enter the Arabian Peninsula. The final leg would take him south another 700 miles to Mecca. The pilgrims, with Musa at their head, set off on their journey in February of 1324, when Musa was about 44 years old. As his predecessor Abu Bakari II had done, Musa named a deputy to lead the empire in his absence. He chose his oldest son, Magan, who was probably in his 20s at the time. He also left his best general in charge of the military, taking his second-in-command on the pilgrimage instead. Musa's wife, a woman named Inari Kunate, came with him on the journey and brought along 500 servants. That's a lot of servants. 
<laughs> yes, it is. But it's nothing compared to her husband's retinue. Musa is said to have brought along 12,000 servants, including 500 whose job was simply to carry golden staffs and walk in front of him. The rest carried his bank account. Four pounds of gold bars each. Joining this huge entourage were 8,000 soldiers and cavalry to protect the caravan on its journey. In addition to them, another 40,000 people came along for the trip, including government officials, wealthy nobles and their families and servants, and everyday Malians who wanted to make the Hajj. In addition to the servants who carried gold bars, some 80 to 100 camels were loaded with 300 pounds each of gold dust. Gold dust, measured and weighed, was the preferred form of currency in the empire. All told, it's estimated that Musa traveled with about a billion dollars worth of gold. As the caravan got underway, the going was slow. With so many people, it was impossible to make more than a few miles each day. In every town and village they passed through, Musa commissioned the building of a mosque, leaving enough gold to pay for the materials and construction. It took nearly six months to reach Cairo. Upon their arrival, the caravan set up a tent city near the pyramids, while Musa and his retinue made a grand entrance into the sprawling Egyptian capital. But when he was taken to meet the powerful sultan, there was a problem. Egypt's sultan at the time was a man named Al-Nasir Muhammad. His deputy informed Musa that any visitor to the sultan was required to bow and kiss the ground before him. Musa, knowing good and well that he was not only wealthier, but also ruled a larger kingdom than the sultan, flat out refused. Very little is known about Mansa Musa as a person, but it's clear that he guarded his own dignity and royal majesty. He wouldn't grovel before anyone. But not meeting with a powerful Egyptian sultan while Musa was in Cairo was simply not an option. They seemed to be at an impasse until Musa finally had a bright idea. He agreed to bow in the sultan's presence but to characterize it as bowing before Allah. With the matter of protocol settled, Musa and the Sultan met, and Musa was formally invited into the city. He ended up staying three months in Cairo, resupplying his caravan and spending prodigiously in the city's marketplaces. During his long stay in Cairo, word of his wealth and power began to spread into the larger Arab world exactly as he'd intended. His generosity and extravagance quickly became legendary. Finally, in the fall of 1324, the caravan moved out of Cairo and headed westward into Arabia. It passed through the sacred city of Medina, where the prophet Muhammad was buried. Musa prayed at his tomb and left an offering of 40 mule loads worth of gold dust. Then the party moved on to Mecca, arriving as planned in time for the festivities of that year's Hajj. Mecca was the one place where Musa wasn't allowed to show off his finery and wealth. All pilgrims on the Hajj are required to wear the same undecorated white gowns. Musa and his people joined the throngs of pilgrims for a week of prayer, ceremonies, and celebrations. 
When it was over, Musa stayed for a while in Mecca, which was the religious, cultural, and academic center of the Muslim world. He recruited numerous people to return with him to Mali, including architects, scholars, theologians, artists, and writers. He'd succeeded in making his empire wealthy in gold. Now he wanted to make it wealthy in knowledge and culture, too. But not all was well on the home front. Well, throughout his pilgrimage, Musa had been receiving regular reports from messengers who traveled the long roads between his capital and the Middle East. While he was still in Mecca, he received word that a rebellion had broken out in one of Mali's eastern provinces. This convinced him that it was time to go home. The caravan began retracing its route back to Cairo. Despite starting off with thousands of pounds of gold and gold dust, Musa had managed to spend it all on his lavish pilgrimage. As a result, when he got back to Cairo, he was forced to take a large loan to fund the rest of the trip home. Well, this was good news for Egypt, which had seen the value of gold depreciate after Musa's first visit the summer before. He'd spent so much gold, it had flooded the market and driven the value of gold down by nearly 20%. But when he took out a huge loan with interest, prices rebounded. Deciding he needed to get home quickly to see to the rebellion, Musa opted to take a different route home from Cairo, heading southwest through the most desolate and arduous portion of the Sahara. When he arrived back in his empire, he discovered, probably to his great delight, that his generals had already put down the rebellion and captured more territory in the process. This included the large and important trading center of Timbuktu on the Niger River. Once he arrived back in his capital of Niani, Musa immediately took gold out of his treasury to pay off the enormous loan he'd taken back in Cairo. The bankers who'd loaned him the money had expected to make a fortune in interest. Instead, he paid off the loan in one installment, ruining the bankers' hopes and flooding the Egyptian market again with gold. Now about 46 years old and debt-free, Musa turned his attention to improving the infrastructure of his booming empire. He immediately put to work all the architects, artists, scholars, and skilled laborers that he'd brought with him back from Mecca and Cairo. His new principal architect was a 35-year-old Spaniard he'd met in Cairo named Ibrahim al-Sahali. A poet and intellectual, as well as an architect, Al-Sahali began a building campaign throughout Mali that transformed the towns and villages. Under Musa's direction, Al-Sahali built a large mosque in Timbuktu that became the home of a new university. Musa endowed it with thousands of books and manuscripts he'd obtained on his pilgrimage. It soon became a center of learning, equal to its counterparts in the rest of the world. At its height, it had 25,000 students, learning everything from mathematics and medicine to astronomy, history, and philosophy. Timbuktu's library surpassed anything in Egypt or the Middle East. In fact, under Musa, it grew to become one of the largest libraries in the world, with more than a million books and manuscripts. In time, Timbuktu itself began to prosper. Musa built a palace there and spent an increasing amount of time in the city. The population boomed, and its fame and renown as a cultural center began to spread. Stories of a great city of gold, known for its learning and advancement, filtered across Europe and the Middle East. 
Scholars and historians and adventurers flocked to the city to see for themselves, marveling at what Mansa Musa had created. With his name and his empire now increasingly known across Europe and the Middle East, Musa began establishing diplomatic relations with foreign countries. Trade, which was already the backbone of the empire's economy and wealth, increased even more. In time, Mali became the second largest empire of its day, larger than Europe's Holy Roman Empire, and second in size only to the Yuan Dynasty in China. It boasted more than 400 cities and towns. As with his early days, little is known of the final years of Mansa Musa's life. In 1330, when Musa was about 50, Timbuktu was attacked by warriors from the Masi Kingdom, which was situated to the southeast of Mali. Musa led his powerful army against these invaders and managed to expel them. Following this, he built a wall around the city with a fort to protect it from future assaults. It was his last widely known act as emperor. Shortly after, Musa died of unknown causes, sometime between 1332 and 1337. His son, Magan, took the throne after him and ruled until 1341. He was then followed by his uncle, Musa's younger brother, Suleiman. Under these rulers and those who came after them, the Malian Empire began to crumble. None could match Mansa Musa's charisma or his innate ability to lead. The empire's borders began to shrink and the great cities fell to ruin. Timbuktu was absorbed into the growing Songhai Empire and eventually it too declined, its buildings falling into rubble and its streets reclaimed by the desert. By the early 19th century, the city was little more than a legend. With geographic societies offering large sums of money to European explorers or adventurers who could rediscover it. By the time Mali became a remote French colony in 1892, Musa's great empire was long gone and largely forgotten by the outside world. Mansa Musa was not only the richest person who ever lived, he was also a powerful leader who made a profound impact not just on Mali and West Africa, but on the larger known world. His pilgrimage to Mecca became the stuff of legend, passed down in oral history and written down by travelers and historians. He spent so much gold on his journey that it destabilized the entire Middle Eastern gold market. It was so severe, in fact, that it took a decade for prices to recover in Egypt. It's the only time in recorded history that a single individual and his spending has resulted in the destabilization of currency. Though his empire crumbled after his death, traces of his building campaign remain, including one of the mosques he built in Timbuktu. Like all of the buildings designed by his principal architect, it was built entirely of earth and straw. During his reign, Mansa Musa doubled the physical size of the Malian Empire, expanding it to include parts of modern Mali, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Senegal, and Guinea. Furthermore, trade tripled under his rule, and the standard of living for his subjects surpassed the norms in Europe and the Middle East. Archaeologist Astley John Hillary Goodwin has stated, 
It can be said with fair certainty that the Malian Empire of the 14th century was far stronger, far richer, far better organized, and even more literate than any Christian power in Europe. Thanks to his prodigious wealth and his famous pilgrimage, Musa is credited with literally putting Mali on the map. Prior to his reign, European mapmakers routinely marked West Africa with drawings of fantastic beasts and empty deserts. After Musa's reign, that all changed. In fact, in 1339, just a few years after Musa's death, Mali was featured prominently on what would become the most famous map of the Middle Ages, the so-called Catalan Atlas of 1375, a six-paneled work of art showing the entire known world at the time. It shows Mali and several of its cities, including Niani and Timbuktu. Mansa Musa himself is depicted on the atlas. He's shown sitting on a throne with a scepter in one hand and a large gold coin in the other. A caption states, This Lord is called Musa. So abundant is the gold which is found in his country that he is the richest and most noble king in all the land. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We will be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Historical Figures, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Historical Figures on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. Historical Figures is written by Scott Christmas and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>